Welcome to this Frequency Matters podcast. I'm Pat Hindle and with my colleague, Eric Heim. And today we're talking with Sarah LaSelva, Director of 6G Marketing at Keysight Technologies. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Pat. So uh, 6G is an exciting area these days. A lot of research has taken off now that 5G is well into its implementation phase. Can you give us a general timeline for 6G standards and kind of the expected start date of deployments? Yeah, so... I would say comparing 5G to 6G, the timeline for the deployment is going to be similar to what we've seen uh, in previous generations as well. It's about a 10-year cycle, and it's really hard to get it more compressed than that, just due to the sheer amount of effort that's required and going through the standardization process, which is a collaborative process. So we're looking at somewhere around the 2030 timeframe for some of those initial deployments. Uh, and the standardization, depending on who you ask, it's looking like somewhere in the t- between 2024 and 2026 for when that's going to get started. Do you know what release numbers those will be? Yeah. So what I've seen is that release 20 is going to be the first study item and release 21 is going to be the first work item. And yeah, the timing of that could could vary slightly depending on how 3GPP ends up doing their release cycle. It's pretty predictable on that 12 to 18 month cadence, but always, always subject to change. Now, 6G promises to incorporate sensing into communications. Uh, Can you tell us how that's being approached and some potential applications? Yeah, sensing is actually one of my favorite applications. I think it's really interesting and innovative what people are trying to do with it. And it's so broad and covers so many different aspects. You know, sensing combined with communications can be done a number of different ways. There's folks that are looking at how can we take the existing signals that we already have and do more processing now that we have more advanced compute powder power. And without even modifying the waveform at all. So that's that's one area. Uh, for example, we're working with some of the folks at UT Austin who are looking to see how can we take existing LTE signal, do some additional processing and get more accurate location information. So that that's kind of one application of sensing. And then you can also take it to other extremes where they're looking at doing things at much higher frequencies, thinking like the automotive radar bands or all the way up into the sub terahertz where there's more bandwidth. And so the idea of creating some new and custom waveforms that would incorporate both a sensing piece and a communications piece is is possible. And one of the things that we've been looking at, you know, in that D-band kind of 144 gigahertz span where there's ample bandwidth is what what are the trade-offs then of making a communication signal either have wider bandwidth or smaller bandwidth, and then doing something with just even a basic channel sounding like a Zadoff two sequence. And what kind of location information can we get from that? And what's the fineness and accuracy of that location that we can get based off of the amount of data that we are putting through and the the amount of bandwidth that we allocate to each of those different parts. So there's still a lot to be determined for exactly how that waveform gets built up. And if we're going to be doing some of the modifications there at all, uh, in the automotive space, you can get some really interesting things by using kind of the existing radar components and then maybe modifying the comms waveform a bit to take that information in. And you can start to go down the path of something like cooperative radar, where if there's a lot of different radar signals being used in a certain area and building out bigger networks. So combining sensing with communications is a really exciting area and it touches on a lot of different applications, a lot of different verticals, and even a lot of different frequency ranges. Yeah, interesting. Certainly sounds like you've got a lot of activity ongoing. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) 
So can you tell us what's being looked at for network architectures like virtual RAN, open RAN, things like that? Yeah, sure. So as far as the network architectures and network topologies, I think virtual RAN was kind of the beginning of the trend. Open RAN is the continuation of it. And in 6G, we're going to see the idea of virtualized, disaggregated, really software-centric RAN and architectures just on steroids. Uh, the openness, I think, is something that I've been watching, and I'm, I'm keen to see how it plays out. I was listening to a webinar a while back where they were talking about open RAN and virtual RAN and saying, we're already seeing all these virtual RAN deployments, but we haven't started to see the true open RAN deployments where they're implementing the maybe the version of the front hall spec that the open RAN Alliance has put out, for example. And we're not seeing necessarily this kind of mix and match and multi-vendor black box idea that's been discussed, but we are seeing things be more disaggregated, decentralized and virtualized. And those are already starting to appear. And so with that trend in mind, I think we're absolutely gonna take it to the next level in 6G. And then the other thing that I think is gonna happen with the RAN architecture is starting to embed artificial intelligence into each of those individual parts. With Open RAN, one of the most compelling things about Open RAN, in my opinion, compared to just straight virtual RAN, is the concept of the RIC, the RAN Intelligent Controller, and embedding kind of some some AI into the into the RIC, and then being able to look at all these different applications made by different vendors to do optimization is extremely compelling. So that's just one small piece where we're starting to see AI come in. And now, if you can imagine putting AI into kind of each individual network component and doing optimization. I think it's going to be really fascinating, really hard, but also have some really great potential for improvement in 6G networks. So you, you touched on this a moment ago. 6G promises to greatly expand bandwidth and capacity uh, like 5G by using frequencies in the lower terahertz range. What additional frequencies are you seeing researchers explore uh, and what are the challenges there? Yeah, so I think of kind of four main bands when I think about 6G. You touched on the first one, the sub-terahertz. It's new, it's interesting. People are always curious to, to get on and, and try things that haven't been done before. So I certainly anticipate some research there. There's some great kind of physical characterization of the frequencies and the wavelengths that make sub-terahertz interesting in addition to the bandwidth. But I don't think that that's going to be the big frequency band for 6G. My bets are on sub six gigahertz. Not very exciting, but really great propagation characterizations. A ton of devices that are already out there. We know how to make them. We know how to do this well. So I see the sub six gigahertz part focusing on uh, spectral efficiency and how can we take what we already have and do it better. However, I do think there are going to be other frequencies, right? I, I just I don't want us to discount what's going on in sub six gigahertz. The other ones that I think are important are FR2 and the seven to 24 gigahertz. With FR2, there's been a ton of money put into it, a lot of investment and very, very minimal uptick in usage for those frequency bands. So I think there's a lot of uh, motivation from operators, carriers, even chipset designers, handset designers to make that useful and to be able to recoup some of the ROI. So I do think we're gonna get some improvements there in FR2. And then the seven to 24 gigahertz band is really interesting because it's new. So it allows us to have more 
frequency bandwidth, more coverage than we did before. But depending on where you are in that spectrum, the propagation characteristics are, are different. So on the lower end, they're really similar to what we've already been doing with sub six, which gets you higher range, good for indoor. On the higher end, we can do some of the kind of the techniques that we've been doing for millimeter wave and leverage that. So I think it's a really appealing option. Uh, it does come with a lot of regulatory challenges, but to have something in that kind of lower frequency range that could potentially be used is, is too appealing to the industry to just let it go. That makes sense. Uh, how will 6G enable a more sustainable green approach uh, more than 5G? I think the, the main reason 6G is going to be better at being green and sustainable is because people are talking about it. <laughs> We're having this conversation right here. And if you asked me 10 years ago, even five years ago, how 5G was going to be more green, I don't think it was at the center of conversation. There's this really strong desire to be better. There's a very high level of awareness of just how many resources we're using within our telecommunications networks. And there's a very strong acknowledgement that we have to do better. Just looking at the overall growth of the ICT industry and how much energy we're using today, we're at something like 2% of the total global energy usage just for ICT. <laughs> and the way that we're tracking on our growth trajectory, we could be upwards in kind of some of the worst case scenarios of using 10% of the, the global consumption of energy. And that's just not sustainable. So there's, there's a lot of efforts for a lot of different reasons to try and be better. You have and one of the obvious ones is cost, right? Electricity isn't free. And if we're going to be driving a lot of this, there's a very high incentive to bring the cost down. And so looking at how we can make our networks use less power. There's also a piece of it, especially coming out of Europe, that's very consumer driven, where consumers want things to be greener. They want them to be more sustainable. So we're seeing from our European operators uh, a drive to say, you know, what, what are your emissions? If we want to calculate the total emissions of our network, we need to know everyone's inside of it. So just even having those conversations, it feels very different in 6G versus 5G. Uh, and then the third one that I think is going to make a big difference is artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is very, very good at optimization. And so it can go through and solve some of these tough challenges of how do we make things more power efficient? How do we know when we can turn on amplifiers, turn off amplifiers? How do we know the best way to have our networks running at peak performance when we can maybe make some tweaks and things like that? So I think just the, the sheer compute power and problem solving capability of artificial intelligence has huge potential to make 6G greener. Yeah, I, I like that we've got to do better because because we do. Uh, let's dive into that that artificial intelligence topic in just a little bit more detail that you just mentioned. Uh, how will AI and machine learning be incorporated into 6G and what advantages will uh, that have? It's a tough question because I think AI and ML will be in everything. I think it's just, it's going to become ubiquitous. Uh, going back to the idea of the virtualized RAN. We see it in the RIC. We're going to start seeing it into the DU. We're going to start seeing it in the CU. It could come into the RU. We're already seeing it in some of the design on the RF front ends and doing optimization. There's a lot of research in using machine learning for channel state information, channel state compression, looking at how to do uh, beam steering, beam selection on the phased arrays for millimeter wave antennas. 
there's just so many different places where AI can be embedded into the network to do optimization. It's hard to just give one. <laughs> um, but so we see it in all these little pieces. And then I think the other area where AI is going to play in it is looking at even those larger scale optimization problems of it can do something, it can look within a side of a single base station, it could look inside of a cell and how we're juggling traffic between multiple different towers. And then even on a bigger scale, it can look at a national level of, of the best way to kind of ebb and flow and, and handle load balancing and things like that. So I don't have a good answer for where, but I think it will be everywhere. And I think it has a ton of promise to make our networks more efficient. So I've seen Keysight leading the industry in the digital twin technology. How are you planning on using digital twins in 6G research and development? What's the application there? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think digital twins are pretty cool because they can provide multiple different advantages. They can provide this really uh, high fidelity environment to kind of test out new ideas, to tweak different things. You could have a high fidelity digital twin built up of your network. And then as you want to roll out software changes, instead of pushing them directly onto your network, you can push them into your digital twin, test them out, make sure everything's looking good, reduce your risk, and then push them out onto the network. Because as we said, everything's becoming virtualized, decentralized. So software is obviously a big part of it. And digital twins, I think, are going to be really important for uh, getting that, that level of assurance and confidence that we need. At the same time, if you have this really hyper-realistic digital version of your virtual world or of your physical world, you can now take that virtual world and generate a bunch of data that can then be used to train your AI algorithms. When we're talking about you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence, it's only ever as good as its training data. <laughs> and within the cellular ecosystem, getting access to real-world data is very tricky. There's a lot of privacy concerns, and there's very, very few companies in the world who have access to that data. And I just, I just don't think they want to share it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's a competitive advantage for them, but also as soon as you share anything, even if you say you've removed everyone's personal data, made it anonymous, there's always that risk that it's not and you could expose something. So I, I think digital twins provide a really interesting way to get that that training data for your AI algorithms, and then be able to use that uh, within the research community, both academic and in industry. And also at the same time, it allows us to kind of play with some unique scenarios where maybe you don't have a real world version that you can even try out yet. So if you were wanting to, I don't know, maybe look at ultra massive MIMO, you could use a digital twin to generate some data off of that and then train your algorithms. So building on that, that thought of uh, risk reduction and optimization with digital twins, security and reliability are, are becoming more important in 5G. How do you see 6G addressing these areas? Yeah, so there's a couple of different techniques that are being thrown out for 6G already uh, in the security and reliability. Um, the concept of zero trust is a big one. How do we build our networks where, you know, we have better confidence about what devices actually are and that we're not just trusting things. Uh, and then one of the other ideas that's been thrown around is actually doing security at the physical layer instead of kind of at the upper layers. And it's, it's looking like there's a lot more intentional thought of how do we build security in from the beginning instead of having it as the afterthought. Like we don't 
just want a firewall, right? We want devices that are secure and built intentionally to work with the base station so that it's harder to spoof them. And then the other thing that people are starting to think about is security in a post-quantum computing world. You know, we talked about the deployment timeline for 6G being in the kind of 10 years out. And I don't know if we're going to have large-scale quantum computers in 10 years, it, but it's certainly possible. And I would certainly say it's coming within the next 20 years, which is how long we're realistically going to have to wait before we have a lot of 7G networks coming out. So this is kind of our opportunity to start thinking about what a security need to look like when quantum computing exists. So I don't have all the answers yet, but, but those are the types of conversations and the types of research that are happening for 6G in the security space right now. So can you tell us a couple of the most interesting research projects that Keysight's involved in with other partners in this area 6G? I've seen a lot of releases of you guys partnering with research institutes and organizations and companies. Yeah, and you know, I think in early research, it's always hard to talk about things <laughs> because not everyone's public. And so we might have a release that we're working with someone, but I can't share a ton of information about what we're actually doing. Uh, but some of the more exciting areas that we can talk about uh, do happen to be on the academic side. I think I mentioned the one at UT that we're working on for the location-based uh, work using sensing, which I think is really, it's really novel and innovative. We're also doing work with artificial intelligence. And so we're, we're working with the University of Malaga on some challenges there and looking at how do we integrate AI and ML into our tools? And then also how does AI and ML affect the actual design process when we're looking at the physical layer of the network. So looking at kind of doing individual block design, individual optimization, but then also starting to kind of have those stretch ideas of could we combine multiple blocks from the PHY and have AI design multiple pieces of it. So uh, if you're listening to this before Mobile World Congress, we do have an AI demo at our booth that uh, you're welcome to go and check out and learn more about that collaboration. Another area that we're researching with the University of Texas, as I mentioned, is this comp this idea of synthetic data. You know, it's it's great to talk about and it's a really important idea, but before we can actually start just cranking out and churning out all of this data, we need to have high confidence that it reflects accurately what's happening in the real world. So we're, we're doing some work based off of some channel modeling um, to see how real world data versus synthetic data can be used to train different algorithms. One of my last favorite ones is from some of these research projects coming out of Europe for the Horizon 2020 projects. We're part of a group, uh, the, the acronym is 6G Sandbox, and that's looking at how do you integrate real world devices and start taking that data and putting, pulling them into digital twins and then building out digital twins to cover more and more different scenarios and more and more different use cases and working on building a fuller, more complete and publicly accessible library of different network digital twins. So we'll have another demo in our booth of showing how we're pulling in an IoT device in, into one of our digital twins and looking at energy efficiency. So that's obviously just a very first use case and we're looking to do more, more complex things and pull in more devices as that project gets ramped up for the next several years. What do you see as the, the biggest challenges for us to overcome to realize the potential of 6G? I have a hard time thinking about the challenges for 6G since it's so early in the game. But one of the challenges I see is making people realize 
that 5G isn't a failure and that 5G is actually pretty great. <laughs> I, I sit, you know, in various different meetings or conferences and I keep hearing that idea of like, well, 5G hasn't lived up to its promise. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, of course not. We're just, <laughs> we've just got release 15. We have it in a few cities. We don't have national coverage. It's like once we get more of the release 16 features in there and onto release 17 and 18, I think 5G is going to look pretty fantastic. Unfortunately, though, we have that perception of 5G just barely does more than LTE, if at all. And so we're at a point where we need to be asking for money to make these investments. And if that's kind of the negative flavor, I could see that impacting the desire to maybe look into some of these more innovative or new technologies like subterahertz. I think kind of the lack of pervasiveness and success in millimeter wave has the potential to kill subterahertz before it ever gets off the ground. So I'm hoping that's not the case. <laughs> um, and I think there's enough passion within the research community that it's going to help drive it and at least evaluate the different use cases. But it very well could be a hindrance in the commercialization and wider launch of some of those technologies. The consumer doesn't have a lot of patience. <laughs> no, no, I really don't. And I'm, I'm not helping. You know, I bought a phone without <laughs> millimeter weight on it because I know it's not widely available in my city. So <laughs> I figure I'll hold off till the next release, right? So. Yeah. yeah. And we always talk about things before they're coming. So then when they do get here, it seems like it's been a long time, but right. they're really just getting started. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sarah, very much for your insights into the future of 6G. Uh, we hope to have you back maybe later in the year for an update. For our listeners, you can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.